I think the good thing about failure is you've got to take the lessons from from it. The the hard thing is actually applying those lessons when you're kind of faced with the same situation again, and then changing your your course, so to speak, so that you don't make the the mistakes. And welcome to No Finish Line, a podcast with John O'Regan, sponsored by Great Outdoors Dublin. Hello and welcome back to No Finish Line podcast featuring athlete interviews and discussion on running, training, travelling and adventure and I'm your host John O'Regan. In this episode of the podcast I'm joined by Scott Jenkins, a Welsh ultra runner. He did his first ultra distance race in 2017 finishing 24th in the Gower 50 mile ultra and since then has competed many races of over 100 miles, some of which we will mention as we get into the conversation. Scott, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thanks so much for having me on, John. It's a real pleasure to be here and, and be chatting to you about all things ultra running. Um, yeah, very, very passionate about the sport. And like you say, been doing it for, for God, 13 years or so now, but only started racing in 2017, but started doing like ultra type style events back in 2010. And so far, so good. The, the joints are holding up all right. That's what I'd say. How are you? Good, but you're a hard man to actually tie down because I've been trying to get you since uh, the start of this year and you have two <laughs> races since then. But I mentioned your first race yeah. back in 2017. But when did you actually start running ultra distance? Because if I'm not mistaken, you did a 2,000 mile run across the USA and that was maybe back in 2010 or a bit earlier. Would that be right? Yeah, that, that, that's where all the uh, insanity started back in 2010. And and thanks for the, the persistence in hunting me down. It wasn't uh, intentionally being elusive. Where are you? Um, where are you today? I'm basically, I'm I'm in Twickenham in London. Okay, so, so you're right, in London. Just the corner okay. from, yeah, just around the corner from Twickenham uh, Stadium, um, but from Cardiff in Wales originally. And uh yeah, been running ultra style distances and challenges, uh, challenges I should say, of uh, our own kind of uh, design since 2010. And the very first big challenge I did was the one you mentioned there, which was Boston to Austin, so 2,000 miles across America. And that was a mar- marathon a day for 75 days. And yeah, just opened my eyes to the world of ultra running. And also what can be achieved when you really put your, your mind and, and body towards one goal. And it was a great experience. One that I got to share with my brother and uh, Reese Jenkins, who's also a runner from Wales, and um, our friend Rusty Tolliver, who's also a runner as well. And we did that to support charity, British Heart Foundation, Help the Heroes and Salute America's Heroes. And from there, it just, um, yeah, I guess you get hooked in a way and just wanted to keep kind of trying to do some good, but also have a bit of an adventure at the same time. And that's how the running's developed, I guess. You know, like, there's a bit of a hook there with uh, Boston to Austin. I think that in itself could be a bit of an attraction like the arc to arch or arch to arc, whichever it is. So I was going to ask you what made you attempt something like that. Then you mentioned the charity. Did you, mm-hmm. did you plan it because you had a charity in mind or did you think of doing something and then decide, well, if we're doing this, we'll involve a charity? So which came first, the charity or the idea? Um, I think the charity came first, actually. So, you know, I've always been, you know, a, a runner, a kind of hobby runner, doing 10Ks, you know, half marathons, things like that, that kind of distance, whilst I was younger. Uh, but also enjoyed playing football um, and uh, less successfully rugby. Uh, for some time um, up until around yeah the age of 30 and you know realized that I didn't really want to continue playing football anymore kind of disillusioned with it and wanted to kind of focus on the running side of things but at the time I was working as a personal trainer in um, in uh, South Wales in a gym I was working with uh, patients who'd had cardiac events and um, I'll never forget it there's this guy called uh, Colin um, Colin basically has had a, um, a cardiac event and one thing that struck me about him was like every week he'd come into the gym and he would just be the most positive person you ever met and you know I used to chat to him lovely fella and like you know I, one day I just said Colin you know it's chucking it down the rain out here it's you know, miserable it's just, every week you come in you do your exercise you're really cheery and happy and I said you know why is that and he said well you know what, 
I feel like I've got a second chance at life. And for me, you know, something resonated with me in that comment. It was a case of, well, you know, I'm 30 years old now working in a gym. You know, what have I done to kind of challenge myself, not just professionally, but like from a, a kind of physical point of view as well and, and try to do some good. So uh, ultimately, I chose the British Heart Foundation as a charity support Um my brother chose uh, Help the Heroes and uh, Rusty, our friend from Texas, chose Salute America's Heroes. And we all ran for, for different charities, but ultimately to, to kind of, you know, do a bit of good in the world. And it was when we were doing that kind of challenge that I realized actually, you know, by taking on something that is going to do some good and having an adventure at the same time, getting to experience it with friends and family is something that I'd like to try and do more of in my life. And I guess my perspective on, on things now is kind of developed to a point where, you know, people, I'm sure they say it to you, John, as well, like, why did you do all this running? You must be crazy. You must be mad, blah, blah, blah. And I say, well, you know, when I get older in life, like, those are the things that I want to reflect on. I want to reflect on the times that I had some adventure with friends, with family, took on a challenge, but but also did some good at the same time. And, and that's how it all came to, to fruition, I guess. There comes a time when they stop asking that question and the question becomes, what, what's next? Now, just going back to that first event, you just mentioned there you came from the football pitch in the gym. This was totally different. Why do you think you were successful at that first challenge when it was really going into the unknown? <laughs> That's a great question. That's a really good question. I think um, there is a bit of uh, the naivety of, well, semi-youth, semi, shall we say, at the age of 30, but a case of, wow, this is, you know, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to go and take on a challenge. And you know what? I think when we all decided that we were going to do this run, we didn't really comprehend, like, how difficult it would be. You know, we were taking three months out of our lives to go and take on this challenge. And most of the time, we, we didn't know where we were staying. You know, the, the next night, we'd run 26 miles, we'd finish, we'd get in the car, we'd go to the nearest town. You know, we'd drive around four or five hotels trying to get a discount on the rate for the room or seeing whether somebody would be kind enough to donate a room for free because we were, you know, doing a run for charity. Then, you know, same kind of situation, trying to get food. And it was, really, it was just a really, really difficult challenge. And I think the way that we were able to succeed... Um, threefold really i think you know the first and most important thing is you know teamwork obviously a very very stressful situation on a daily basis but one that you know we were able to ultimately overcome together as a group um me rusty reese our uh, support team that we had john and and adam were absolutely fantastic and you know what there were ups and downs along the way but whenever we chat about it now you just think wow it's such an, an achievement I think the second element was obviously the physical aspect and really interesting um, kind of adaptations throughout the body that we all kind of experienced. But for me, you know, the first two weeks were absolutely horrendous. A lot of pain, a lot of swelling, running on the roads. And then slowly but surely the body kind of adapted to like, okay, this is the regime. This is what you're going to do all day. Um, You know, it expects to be fed at these times kind of thing. Um, and it'll just keep moving forward. The only thing physically which I really suffered with was um, really kind of um, painful Achilles tendons early in the morning when we start running. But once they warm up, they become a little bit more kind of responsive, I suppose. And then the third thing for me was it's just mindset, really. And uh, the core of every ultra, and I really think, and you know, I've learned over the years, is your body will, will ultimately keep going. But it's whether your mind will keep you going when the, the chips are down and you're faced with those really difficult situations. And, you know, I think I learned a lot about my resolve and mindset doing Boston to Austin, which has probably helped serve me both professionally in, in my day-to-day job, but also, um, you know, outside of that in my running hobby, I guess, over the course of the last 13 years as well. So, yeah, there's multiple things that, add up to try and make one of those type of events successful I guess That's a lesson that usually takes a bit longer to learn uh, in this kind of sport Now it's interesting that you mentioned naivety because I'm wondering now were you successful at it because you didn't know that you couldn't do it maybe if you had been talking to 
running coaches or their ultra runners and telling them that this was your first mm-hmm. attempt at something like this, they'd be telling you, no, you can't do it. So th- that doubt was probably never in your mind. Would that sound right? You never had the doubt that you couldn't do it? Yeah, yeah, I, I think that was right, you know, and you're, you're absolutely spot on. If you go and talk to a running coach or something, they'd be like, right, you need to train for X amount of years to do this, you need to do this, you need to... And actually, I think the naivety of it all going into that event... Not because we we weren't organised or anything, but just we didn't really know what to expect. And I, even if I went back tomorrow, I'm sure there's things that I've forgotten that I wouldn't remember about expecting the second time round. Think little things like being chased down the road by dogs in rural Kentucky, and you know, not where you, knowing where you're going to sleep. All those kind of things. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I think actually having that kind of naivety really helped. And actually, there's one or two people who are like you're mad. You're never going to be able to do that. You know. Not so much from the running world, but just from day-to-day work and stuff. But I guess, you know, I'm sure you've done this in the past as well. You just make a note of those comments and when the when the crap hits the fan and you're out there running in the middle of nowhere somewhere, you just kind of think to yourself, oh, I remember what that person said and uh, use it as a little bit of fuel for the fire, right? You must have done that a few times. Or, or say to yourself, why didn't I listen? <laughs> <laughs> so you had naivety and the, the spirit of adventure. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Now, just you mentioned. And I'd like to say the yeah. um, enthusiasm of youth, but I was yeah. getting on for okay. the Middle Ages by then. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> okay. We let that one pass. Now, just as you, you, you mentioned your brother there, and when I was trying to get you where, uh, at one stage earlier this year, I was told that you were in Badwater. Yeah. And then I went looking and I couldn't find you. No, I just went, <laughs> I went looking to follow you more so, but you actually, you were crewing for your brother during the uh, Badwater 135. Now, you've also done that race. You did that race, was it the year before? So, yeah, um, in 2019, I crewed for my brother, uh, Rhys Jenkins, and, and he okay, finished the race up, in yeah. 2019. Okay. Yeah. yeah, no, it's no problem. Um, so he was the, the first Welsh person to finish it. It was super cool. Um, and then uh, 2020 was the COVID year, which was obviously an absolute disaster. Um, and then 2021, um, I was fortunate enough to, to get some dispensation to be able to travel to the US to do bad water. So I got my bite of it in 2021 and, and managed to finish it as well. So it's chuffed bits with that. And then in 2022, I went back. So you were Malaysia, back. Yeah. OK, say. I'm right. So you were yeah, back, I was yeah. back. Yeah. So I just I, my brother was also running, but I, I had promised my friend, my good friend Laura Rot, uh, Watts, who's a, is a great runner as well, and I said that I would crew her when she got into the race. So um, yeah, very fortunate to have been at the last three bad waters and enjoyed them immensely. Right, let's go back to when you actually uh, ran the race. How many did mm-hmm. you have on your support crew? Two, um, <laughs> and do you know what? It was my. So it was kind of one of those kind of situations and uh, that you just feel fortunate to even be there in the first place. So obviously global pandemic, travel shut down, you know, I get into bad water and the race is cancelled. Now the travel obviously didn't resume to the US until, what was it, October, I think, last year, around about this time last year. Now, um, obviously... I was trying to explore different avenues. Could I go to a certain country and, you know, um, quarantine, then move on to the States and simply put, I couldn't do that because obviously my amount of time off work is limited and, you know, it's going to be really difficult, you know, to be able to do that. And also financially, it costs a lot of money too. Um, So it got to May time and, you know, I've been training since January 2021, or 2020 really to, to be in the race. But obviously now we're in, kind of may 2021 and still the travel looks like it's off and i don't forget it my my wife abby just came up with a suggestion one night she said look you know why don't you call someone at uk athletics see if they can help you so um i rang up the switchboard uk athletics um you know just begged someone to try and help me and um eventually got put through to a lady um who kind of so, yeah, no problem. You know, get me a, a letter from the race, explain what the race is, how it's an international, you know, invite only event, et cetera, et cetera, which I did. And I forwarded it on and, you know, mentioned my crew, which was at that time, you know, was um, 
Abby and my good friend uh, Chris Ferrier. You uh, need you need to check if there's a second insurance policy out in your life. She's sending you off. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And um, so basically, I heard nothing. Um, and then I, I'll never forget it. I was in the gym training, um, kind of in the last chance saloon, thinking, well, you know, it's, it's two weeks to the event now. Maybe it'll get the green light. Maybe it won't. But you know, it doesn't look like I'm going to be here. And you know, still my nightly run on the treadmill actually because uh, the heater's set up in there. And um, I uh, checked my emails. I come off the treadmill and just had this email from the lady at UK Athletics with like three PDFs attached to it. And I opened these PDFs, and they were literally from the US Olympic Committee giving us dispensation to to travel to to race at Badwater, which was just even now mate you know talking to you about it i still feel slightly emotional thinking about it because it was the kind of you know not culmination but knowing that you're going to going to get the chance to take a crack at your, your dream race i guess and um I, at that point i knew i'd only have two crew members so yeah it's better to be there with two people than not be there at all with no people so i just thought right let's crack on let's give it a go and um very fortunate that, you know, started the race and um, midway through the race, um, two uh, other people that we'd met at race check-in, um, Jules and Darren from the States, had um, their runner had sadly dropped out at Panaman Spring, which is around the 72-mile mark. And um, they really kindly jumped in in the middle of the race onto my crew, so I ended up with four people but started off with two. So um, a long answer, but it was kind of, really valid because all four of those people helped me to accomplish something that you know i dreamt about doing so yeah it was pretty cool yeah it is a very valid answer because i was going to ask is two people too small and they wouldn't let you into that race if you didn't have a crew yeah i think you're right John. yeah because you had two other crew members who you did who you didn't know did that not make things a bit complicated like in that when you know your crew, you know how you can behave with them. You know what you can, you know what you get away with. But when it's someone else, yeah. you you don't know, and that can maybe affect your decision making. Absolutely. So, like, if if you if you're in that situation, you're planning it, you know, for a year out from now till next July, you're thinking, right, I'm going to take the people that know me best. You know, the the good runner, the person that's good at crewing, the good driver, the good nutritionist, all those things, whatever you want out of those four people. And when obviously, you know, we got the dispensation, I knew obviously my, my good friend, Chris, who's not really a massive runner and did, I've got to say credit to him, did no, no heat training whatsoever, but still came out and, and managed to get through like 50 or 60 miles pacing me during the race, which is incredible. Um, and just shows the the, the kind of um, impact that positive attitude can have. And then Abby obviously knows me really well and knows how I perform in races. But I think, you know, having two people join, there is always that trepidation. But I think, you know, as ultra runners, we we learn to, like, you know, realise that shit is going to hit the fan and everything's not going to go to the plan that you had in your head. And, you know, can you adapt? Can you adjust to that? And very fortunately for me, I just kind of looked at it as like, well, you know what? Two people is going to be great because they're going to be able to assist my two crew members that are tired. And even if they just you know, drive or just fill the water bottles, that's got to be some relief on my team as well. So for me, it was just a, a blessing to, to have two people join. And the cherry on top was that they were both absolutely awesome, really positive and uh, enjoyed our, our British or European sense of humour as well. So it was good fun. And with having your wife on the team when things get really bad, do you think that that might kind of uh, again maybe affect your judgment or decision making with should you go on, should you stop? Uh, if you were feeling, if you were looking really bad, dehydrated, a bit injured, is it a kind of emotional connection that would kind of cloud your judgment? Do you get me? Um, do you know what? I think it works the opposite way with um, with Abs, my wife. So she's uh, she's from Scotland, so um, she doesn't take any medicine, as you can imagine. Um, and I I think only once have we kind of made the wrong call on on a race where uh, it wasn't even a race; it was a self made challenge to run across the bad water route in July 2016. Second time that I'd done it, I'd obviously wanted to 
build my running CV to one day apply for Badwater and thought, well, you know what, if I go and do two solo crossings in 2015, 2016, shows that I'm passionate about the area, about running in the desert and build a CV. And I ended up getting rhabdomyolysis right before uh, the turn into Lone Pine. So I think that's around mile 115, 120, something like that. And um, that was the only time where the kind of I, abs had kept pushing me and pushing me and actually ended up you know, pretty unwell. But the rest of the time, I trusted to make the right decisions. Um, and she always does. And I think actually, you know, as I've got more experienced, I think, you know, running in more extreme environments that I've been in, um, it helps give you a perspective on things and actually um i think ali bailey you know runner from the uk it sums it up quite well is it a injury or is it actually an injury <laughs> and i always kind of sense check myself on that now i'm like am i just whinging yeah, yeah. or is it actually you know a, a permanent <laughs> debilitating injury and i think again nine times out of ten it's actually just whinging in the head <laughs> Let's go back to Abby again. So Abby would be your your most experienced crew person as far as you're concerned. If it was a thing that oh, Abby... Definitely. Yeah. Okay, so you're over in Badwater. You built a start to race. Turns mm-hmm. out Abby gets called back home. She's to work or something. How do you replace Abby? What characteristics, what skill set are you looking for in someone that is going to crew you during a race like that? I think... Um, it's a, again, it's a really good question. So I think, you know, you need someone who's strong, um, who sticks to the plan, um, who is going to lead as well. Um, because I think in a crew, you need a captain 100%. And that's not to direct people around, but that's to be the person that gets to execute the decisions that are going to be most difficult. Okay. You know, is he severely injured, dehydrated, you know, on death's door? Or is he able to kind of keep going? Um, and they've got to be organised and they've got to, you know, almost the same as if you were playing rugby or football, right? You've got to lift the team around you. You've got to kind of direct people and say, right, okay, I'm going to drive. You're going to fill the water bottles. You're going to get the food. Okay, have we got everything we need? You know, who's got the directions, GPX file, whatever it might be. And kind of going through those, those checklists, those tick boxes to make sure the same way that if you were setting up for a flight, right, you, you've got everything in place for a successful flight. And then also um, kind of like a pit stop, really, isn't it? In F1, you, you know what it's like yourself, like you come into an aid station, um, making sure you're not messing around too much, you know, not dilly-dallying, talking to here, you know everyone who's around, sitting in the chair too long. I think, you know, that's developed over time and that's a big skill in some of these ultra races is it's easy to kind of, get lured into the aid station like uh, like the mermaids uh, beckoning the uh, the sailors onto the rocks and then all of a sudden you know you stay in an aid station too long start shaking you're too cold and you know that can lead to dnf so i think it's yeah to summarize somebody who's who's strong independent and is ready to make the tough decisions when you're in a difficult situation I'm tempted to actually edit that piece about the mermaid out and use it myself. I'm going to rob it from you. That's a brilliant one. And it's very true. Very, very true. You know? It is true, it isn't is it? True, like, yeah. I've been in so many races and like you see people come into an aid station and they've been running alongside you and then like, five, ten that minutes later like, oh, you're, you're yeah. leaving and they're, they're holding court and then you're thinking that's, yeah. it. that's it, it's all over. Yes, exactly. And that's exactly how it happens. Now, because you have, crew, yeah. just going back to the way you explained the ideal crew person and because you've crewed before, are you looking mm-hmm. for you in the crew person? Do you think that somebody else is good enough to do the job? And what I mean by that is, when you're actually running, do you ever get to a point where you're then trying to direct the crew and that's affecting your running? Or can you just say, no, that's their job. I'm just here to run. End of story. Uh yeah, I, I I don't direct the crew. I, you know, I I might have a you know pre-race briefing where we discuss you know the things that I might like what I you know I'm going to probably behave like you know most of the time I would say um, signs to watch out for all those kind of things. But I've never found myself wanting during a race to kind of get involved on the crew side of things. I trust them, and that's why they're there first and foremost. You know, especially in a race like Badwater where 
you know, it's quite literally things go wrong. It's life and death in, in 52 degree heat. And, um, yeah, you've got to trust them. So the same as I trust my team at work, you know, I feel like if if you look after people, then you know people look after the customers. That's how we 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 do our job, and I look after my team, and they I trust them to do the same. It's a little bit with the crew is, you know, I look after them, and I trust them to kind of look after me, and that's that's all it is. Um, you know, I think crew in a race like Badwater is different to any other because you you kind of got that ridiculous ridiculously hot temperature the one that kind of you know 52 degrees is not for irish or welsh people as i'm sure you appreciate we need to get the old uh, factor 50 sun cream on but you know it's a very very harsh environment and um abs has you know been to a lot of these big races with me now you know she's crewed me at bigfoot moab twice uh cocodona all the canal races in the UK, bad water, twice across Death Valley. So she's got so much experience in crew. And I was actually saying, so you should kind of hire your uh, hire yourself out as like a crew for hire because actually she's been a lot of big races and knows where the crux of these races are and how to support a runner through them. I must remember that because bad water is one of those races that I want to do and have to do. It's one of having oh, for quite it's a while. such a great experience. Now, you mentioned Moab. Moab, from what I can gather, was your first race outside of the UK. Uh, was it my first race outside? Yeah. 2019. Yeah, so my okay. first, and that's yeah, a two, first is it 240 kilometres or miles? Miles. Miles, okay. yeah. Non-stop and that's, miles. Yeah. Okay, non-stop. So how does that work then with... Uh, with uh, checkpoints, do you, do you just sleep out where you want during the night, or do they have somewhere that you can actually like a refuge where you can sleep? I've done some races where it's continuous, but they have places where you can actually sleep. Yeah, so um, Moab obviously it's a it's one of the the newer two hundred milers that are, that are kind of popping up, and I, honestly, I love the two hundred mile distance or two forty, whatever it is, but. Um, I think it's uh, it's such a such a remote place and um, such like swings in temperature. Like you can get like thirty degrees in the daytime, um, and then you'll get like minus four at night, and then you're going up to like elevations of ten thousand feet, that kind of thing. So um, the sleep stations specifically, they have like aid stations roughly kind of every twenty miles or so. Um, and then they tend to have like either little cots that are in, in sleep station tents there. People will sleep in their crew cars as well. Or I do a mixture of both, um, sleep in the crew car if I get a chance or um, get the foil blanket and bed down on the desert floor in the forest or wherever it may be. But once you start, you're on the clock and however much sleep you get is going to contribute to your time. So too much sleep you're going to be too slow too little sleep you're going to slow down because you get sleep deprivation which is a whole different poor game um so yeah and as you know like the more tired you get the more mistakes you make the, the chances are you're going to dnf so it's um it's a fine line it's one that i'm still trying to figure out perfectly and sometimes i get it right sometimes i get it wrong um but i thoroughly enjoy the the 200s and the 200 mile plus distances great experience and Moab is a beautiful race honestly it really is incredible scenery I've done it twice as well so yeah really enjoy it I wasn't actually expecting the way you explained it a friend of mine is actually training for it now at the moment and that's one of the reasons well yeah why I wanted to uh, talk to you and I had noticed that you knocked 15-20 hours off your time between Mm -hmm. the two that you did and just as you mentioned there about every 20 miles a checkpoint or so that can sound like it's a good safety net but for racing it makes it a lot more difficult because there are a lot more opportunities to uh, stop and rest but as you said if you're resting Mm. you kind of missing that strategic racing element of the event and you don't know what the other person is doing because they can sneak by you when you're sleeping but as you said it's, it's a fine line between getting what you need versus getting what you want so it that yeah, sounds like a, quite a tricky quite a tricky race and what would your oh if, it is yeah if you were going again what would your strategy be to sleep little and often or to try maybe sleep towards the start to de- delay the sleep deprivation to kind of get you faster towards the finish um 
it's uh, <laughs> I forget what I said there. Camps, right? There's, yeah, yeah, no, so yeah, absolutely. Like, there's there's different camps on it. Some people like to sleep for you know they can get by on on less sleep, like five minutes a night or whatever it may be. Which personally, I can't, and I think everyone's slightly different in in that regard. And um, you're absolutely spot on in your assessment of it. Like it does become really, really strategic, especially when you, you're pushing because you're like, okay, you know, it's a little bit like again the the F1 pit stop analogy, right? You know, you pit too early, and your your, your competitor's going to go past you, and then you've got to try and figure out when are they going to pit, kind of thing. Um, which again is more difficult to do the more tired you get. And to your point on the 20 mile sections, like you know, if you don't get enough sleep and then you come out of a, an aid station, let's say for example, you've forgotten to fill one of your water bottles. Well, guess what? You're in in, in the middle of the the high Moab desert, um, you know, up at seven or eight thousand feet. You're not going to find much water. So, 500 mils to get you 20 miles is is a lot to take on, especially when you you know 30 degree heat. It's enough to finish your race for sure. So, you've got to be super careful with the sleep element. If I was your friend, I would be very tempted to stick to uh, the strategy which I deployed last time, um, not my 2019 strategy, which was uh, diabolical because I didn't really know about sleep deprivation. Um, I went for an hour on the first night, hour on the second night, and I think an hour on hour and a half on the last night. No, so an hour on the last night, and then h- half an hour on the the morning of the, the the penultimate day, sort of thing. So about three and a half to four hours total, I would say. Um, again, all of those. Uh, um, Age stations, um, so 70, 140, um, 170-ish, and then um, 200, and then I ran it in from 200 to 240. Um, the reason that I slept in the car was because um, it was freezing at night. It was minus five. And, um, yeah, you simply can't sleep in a foil blanket at that, that kind of temperature. You start shivering, and you know what it's like. You get all that shaking. So that would be my my kind of strategy if I went back again but I would try to trim it down a bit so to speak and as you mentioned there the sleeping at one hour night one one hour night two or day two it's a race like this the days all kind of blend into each other so you probably lose track of time mm-hmm. so it's not like I'm going to go to bed at 11 o'clock and wake up at 12 it's it you're really getting yourself uh, the time is determined by when you arrive at somewhere that you can't sleep and you're making a judgment in that will I make it to the next one safely or should it be stay here and get the bit of extra rest yeah yeah definitely there's one section from uh, Pole Canyon to Giza Pass which is like mile 170 to I think it's like mile 195 so it's a big section and it's like five six thousand feet of elevation and, you know, every year you'll see people get to that age station and they, they're like, you know, do I lay up or do I go for it? Because it's getting dark, it's getting cold. And, you know, I guess fortune favours the brave, in my opinion. I, I, I go for it every time. But um, there's certain people that won't. They'll, they'll go, nah, do you know what? I'm not going up that mountain to 10,000 feet in the middle of the night. Um, yeah, so everyone's got to make their own decision in that situation, I guess. And again, that's why you need the crew around you. Right. And do you find that you're able to sleep and switch off or does your mind be racing and um, you're not able to really switch off? Sometimes I can just hit my head, it's a pillow and that's it. Boom, straight out. Oh, you have Other a pillow? Times, yeah, yeah. Real oh. luxury. It's like five-star resort in the back of that truck. I, uh, Silver. Treat myself to like a three-dollar pillow from Walmart and um, look forward to sticking my head on that for a, an hour each night. Um, but yeah, <laughs> that's that's pretty much it. I like sometimes I, I hit the pillow and boom, done. And then you know, other times I find it exceptionally difficult. And you know, you know the performance difference straight away when you know you've had a disjointed sleep and you get up. You're just a little bit more groggy, a little bit less responsive. But if you get a good REM cycle of like, you know, 40 minutes to an hour, um, I find that once you loosen up a bit, you're absolutely good to go again and you start moving quicker than probably you were before you got into the age station. Yeah, it's hard getting that balance right, isn't it? Will you be going back again? 
Yeah, yeah, I'd love to go back to Moab again. Um, it won't be obviously this year. I think it's um, maybe in like two weeks' time. I think the race is. So yeah, you should definitely track it. Um, okay. I'll be going back to Moab probably maybe next year. Um, I intend to go. No, no, I can't go back. Yeah, next year I'll go back to Moab. I can't go back to Cocodona next year because uh, it's my wife's birthday on the day the race starts. So she wouldn't be too happy about that. <laughs> okay, right. Okay, I'll, I'll say nothing. Uh, now, Cocodona, that's a race I wasn't familiar with. Actually, the two races you did this year I wasn't familiar with, but what is the Cocodona race? Is that road or trail? Oh, it's awesome. So, um, Cocodona is a 250-mile race from um, Black Canyon Sea in Arizona okay, to right. Flagstaff. Right. Um, so, yeah, it's 250 um again really really hot i think the challenge for us coming from the uk and ireland is that it's right at the beginning of may so we're just emerging from the, the gloomy old rainy winter and you get down to arizona and it's already like 30 35 degrees and you're like oh, okay this is going to be tricky and like to put that into um comparison you know every race is difficult in different ways and different cruxes and different problems but like you know, at bad water is 52 degrees and, you know, you've got a car every three miles topping you off with water. So, you know, you've got a, a good chance of you know, staying healthy and that's why no one dies during the race, but it's still... But are you going to stop it every second? But as you mentioned on a bad water, that's not a luxury, that's out of necessity. Isn't that right? Like, they, yeah. they have to, it would not be possible. If you were left on your own, you would not get through bad water. Absolutely, you and that, that's why you need that okay. Sorry, yeah, I interrupted you there, but I didn't want to forget that. Post, so let's get back on to. No, it's a good point, yeah. and it's a good point. But that's the comparison, right? So you know, obviously, it, it's extremely dangerous and difficult to run bad water for that exact reason. But then you know, you've kind of got to think: well, thirty-five degrees, twenty miles, how much water can you carry on you before you start to kind of get? Um, the same kind of dangers. It doesn't need to be, you know, yourself, you can get sleep, uh, sleep stroke, <laughs> heat stroke or heat uh, exhaustion in any kind of, you know, 25, 30, 35. So, you know, that kind of exposure and down there in the Sonoran Desert where the sun just does not relent on you for, you know, a 20 mile section, which could take eight hours, um, comes with its own set of challenges. And that, I think, you know, I've reflected on it. A lot of people say, oh, you know, watch the most difficult race you've done, blah, blah, blah. And I, do you know what? They're all difficult. They're all difficult in different ways and different challenges. And Coca Donors is, is the distance element. It's just a massive dif- distance in hot temperatures, but not exceedingly hot temperatures, if, if that makes sense. But beautiful course. Um, the great thing about it is that you go over a couple of different mountain ranges. You go through Sedona National Park, which are all beautiful red rocks. Um, you see all the big, you know, kind of cactuses and kind of come down through these cowboy towns. And that's pretty cool because you're kind of out in the middle of nowhere and then through a small little cowboy town where the, the, the bar or saloon saloon doors are swinging on the hinges, which is quite cool. I think there's one section, um, the descent from Mingus Mountain, where you run alongside a, a copper quarry um, or a copper mine. And at the end of the race, the, if you finish, they give you a buckle, which is made of the copper from that mine, which I just think is you know, really nice touch. And yeah, it makes it a very special race for me. So again, I'd love to go back and do that one again in the future, for sure. I reckon when I put this podcast out and a few people started listening to it, they're going to be googling these races, and that one sounds <laughs> that one sounds amazing. Like you've you've sold that one to me now, and one thing I do know about <laughs> I should be on is, commission, shouldn't I? Yeah, you should. Yeah, you should be. It's another non-stop race. I do know that there is a Black Canyon Ultra. That's the only race I knew of around that area. I've heard I've mentioned. Yeah, by same. I, few I think it's the same runners. running group. Aravapia running. Oh yes, yeah, um, I'm familiar with them. Yeah. Yeah, so it's Jamil, Jamil Curry and Steve Adderholt. Honestly, Steve uh, uh, and Jamil, both legends, and Steve in particular, was just so good at the race. I remember seeing him uh, out in the heat uh, just past uh, the town of Prescott, and I said, bloody hell, Steve, you know, you've come up with a heck of a course here, it's a heck of a challenge, and you're super proud of it. And, you know, they're very proud people. The Arizonans are really welcoming him as well. And he said, well, you know, when we get to when you get to the end, we'll we'll have a beer. So I got across the finish line, and the first thing I did was like 
Steve with my beer and he produced a couple of cans of uh, lager and we uh, we had that at the finish line. So that was pretty special too. But I love that experience. Really yeah, cool. Nice memory. And yeah. also this year, which again, when I was trying to contact you, you were taking part in the Bigfoot 200, another race I hadn't heard of. So I did actually go and check that one out. That seems to be another non-stop race. Now, I was more familiar with the multi-stage races where your accumulated mm. time for the stage is added up, but your sleep time from when you arrive into the camp and when everyone starts off the next day is not included. Yeah, yeah. So these are very different in that your race, rather than being over so many days, it's just it's just continuous. Your sleep time is also counted. Now, the Bigfoot race... I was very, very uh, impressed with that one. Now it's it's called the Bigfoot Two Hundred. So that's yeah, two hundred nine miles nonstop, which will be mm-hmm. in European money, three hundred thirty seven kilometers. You had forty six thousand <laughs> feet of as- of ascent, being fourteen thousand meters, which is phenomenal. There Thanks. is five aid stations on this, which you know, uh, sorry, five sleep stations. So that's very, very few opportunities to actually sleep over that distance. Yeah. What attracted you to this one? Um, <laughs> so, and everything you said is absolutely, you know, right. And, and thank you for the kind words as well. It really means a lot to me. Um, Bigfoot in particular meant a lot to me this year. So I, um, last year I signed up to do Bad Water and Triple Crown of 200, which is Bad Water, Bigfoot, Tahoe and uh, Moab. Now I ran, finished Bad Water. Um, and from Badwater, I came back to London, worked for two weeks, then I flew back out to LA and flew up to Seattle. And I got into the race like uh, two days before it started. So I literally had like, um, you know, loads of sleep deprivation going into the race. And um, I remember at the start line, uh, Candy, who's the race director, said, uh, you know, runners, you've got to be careful out there today. It's going to be 42 degrees, you know, or whatever it was in Fahrenheit. And I'm thinking, Oh my God, like, you know, 40, 42 degrees, you know, that is getting towards the kind of temperatures that you see at bad water. Um, and then I'm thinking, well, how many water bottles have I got on me here? Well, I've got two 500 mil flasks. Okay. Um, where's my, where's my bladder? I've left my bladder in London and I'm just thinking this is going to be really, really challenging. Um, especially the first section, uh, where there's very little water you're exposed on the side of Mount St. Helens. Um, Made loads of mistakes, but that was the biggest one that contributed to my problem at Bigfoot in 2021. Basically, um, got dehydrated in the first, uh, the second section on the side of Mount St. Helens. Um, 20 mile section, uh, only one water station, and it's not even water station, it's just coming out of the mountain. So you've got to filter it yourself uh, using a water bowl and um, basically got dehydrated, uh, managed to turn it around, uh, got into the next aid station at like 32 miles, um, rehydrated, got back out there, but then uh, the damage had already been done. had a really tight uh, IT band, um, which just flared up. And I couldn't run, couldn't run downhill, couldn't run flats, could hike uphill relatively all right, but any kind of impact was causing me real problems. Basically, um, battled my way, slowed down massively, um, battled my way all the way to mile 160. Um, and I thought I'd done it. I thought I'd, like, I'd cracked it, you know, 40 miles to go. I know what I've got to do. Just keep taking the painkillers, put my leg in the water crossings when I get to them. Um, and yeah, uh, got lost, got sleep revived and, and got timed out of the race, which never happened to me. Um, was so disappointed because I had no crew, um, I'm alone in the, the, the Cascade Mountains of Pacific Northwest on the trail where it's the middle of the night, it's misty, it's starting to rain, and I'm sleep deprived, confused, don't know where I'm going. Um, and they basically had to walk back to the aid station I just left, and yeah, I was devastated. Um, and it is, uh, I know we talked about earlier, like a lot of races have you know, challenges, but this race, every section is a challenge, whether it's like the blast zone that's like, you know, 5,000 feet of climbing and it's 42 degrees or, you know, you're climbing on the side of a cliff face in the middle of the night. Every section is just brutal, especially like 47,000 feet of elevation. You're either going up or you're going down, but mostly you're going up. So, um, yeah, DNF the race at mile 160. Um, 
I drove, drove in a volunteer car down to the finish line and I sat there and I watched every runner finish the race. Um, a, because I had massive respect for all of them crossing the finish line, but B, I wanted to kind of remind myself of that moment so that, you know, again, fuel for the fire so that I'd sign myself back up for that race and, you know, I'd make the effort to really focus on that as the, the race that I wanted to do well in this year. And um, yeah, 13th of August, found myself back at the start of uh, this race. Um, you know, if I'm truly honest, very nervous, very scared, but with a crew with me, two paces with Abby, and I was, you know, took a bit of confidence in that, trust them to make the right decisions and execute on the plan and remember your water bladder. And I was able to do that and um, got out, got after it, and yeah, managed to finish in, in 25th in the end in 82 hours. So, not bad for somebody coming from the flatland, living in London, to go and do a, a true mountain race like that. So I was pretty chuffed with that one, to be fair. Well, you're giving me lots of questions now. I won't remember them all. <laughs> I didn't know that you DNF'd. Yeah, yeah. So now I'm wondering, because you've done Moab twice, and it sounds like you like that race, and as you said, it is on in two weeks' time or so, do you think that yeah. your determination to finish Bigfoot not only brought you back there, but actually prevented you from entering Moab again. Um, I yeah, to be honest, I, I haven't got the annual leave to take to do <laughs> Moab again this year, which okay. I'd love to do. I'd love to do because I had a good outing there last year. But if you had finished Bigfoot the, the first time, what would you have done this year, Bigfoot or Moab? I'm, I'm looking to find your favourite race. Oh, that's a good question. I think Moab's probably just about my my favorite okay, so now um, now i'm getting to learn a bit about you it's mm. that want to succeed you want to put that dnf that failure behind you i didn't know you had dnf in it so you didn't have to tell me that yeah but you're using that now as something to push you forward that's oh, interesting definitely. i yeah. i mean I, I I felt like it was me versus Bigfoot, John. Like I generally felt like affronted that that had happened. Like it, my mistakes, you know. And I think the good thing about failure is you've got to take the lessons from from it. The the hard thing is actually applying those lessons when you're kind of faced with the same situation again, and then changing your your course, so to speak, so that you don't make the the mistakes and. You know, I, I just executed on the plan that my coach, Jeff Browning, gave for me and just ran section by section. And I knew, like, you know, OK, it's not not quite as hot as last year. If I can get into that 32-mile aid station, you know, quite a bit ahead of where I was the year before, I'm going to feel good positively. And you know what? I got in there like four or five hours ahead of where I was before. And then I remember getting to the first time I could see crew at Coldwater Lake 45 miles in. And um, I think, you know, covered a fair amount of elevation considering running a 209-mile race. I think I came in there at just over 11 hours. And I'm thinking to myself, hang on, you know, the last time you sat in this car park getting a drink, it was 3 o'clock in the morning. And here we are, it's just gone 8 o'clock in the evening. So immediately, you know, I'm doing the math in my head thinking, all right, you know, this is on. Let's, let's really get after this race now. Um, next section is a 20 mile climb, like a 20 mile climb in the middle of the night in deep, dark, remote forest in the middle of nowhere. And you know that there's mountain lions and there's bears and stuff out there. And there's a lot of them in that area. I mean, the, the nearest town's called Cougar. Um, and it's just brutal. It doesn't stop. Like every section is just, it, it's a challenge. And, you know, going back to that rugby analogy, it's like, it's almost like you're looking at the course in the face and you're going, right, come on, what have you got? What are you going to throw at me this time? What's, what's the next challenge? And there's this one section, the section that I DNF'd on, and I got got into there, I think it was like 11, again, 11 o'clock at night. And the, the previous year, I'd been almost, I think, like in there at like, I want to say 8 p.m., the the following day so i was almost like a day ahead of myself and i got into that aid station there was some volunteers that had been there the year before and they i think they were a little bit shocked to see me you know so far at the race after having such a bad race the year before i just remember thinking you know this is it this is this is the section that's the hardest part of the race and if you you can get through this then you can get through anything and it's brutal it's not like 
single track trail it's like you're bushwhacking through trees then you're climbing over the top of the tree then you're climbing under it rolling around on the floor it's cold it's dark it's misty um and yeah i climbed this one one climb uh, for part of this uh, section called mission mountain as with my good friend wes plate who's uh, another runner who finished the race and my pace and molly and we came over the top Beautiful view, full moon. You know, you could see right across the kind of Cascade Mountains, and it was the only one of the only times we're out of the dark forest. And um, I remember looking and then slipping on my butt and sliding down this slope and jabbed my um, my poles into the ground, and they stopped me. And I, I kind of, oof, you know, that's a bit a bit sketchy. And I got up and just looked across my left, and literally half a yard from falling off a cliff in the middle of the night. And I just thought, you know. <laughs> that's pretty scary and uh you know this is the challenge that i've, I've kind of come for and I, I was expecting it and in a way i felt i feel really pleased that the trail kind of threw everything it had at me and same section um and you can fact fact check this with my friend wes plate um but basically um you know we, we were tired we we'd slept for i think two hours at that point and um Molly said to us, like, you know, why don't you sleep on the floor for 30 minutes? So get the foil blankets out, not too cold now, um, wrap them around us, sleep on the forest floor. Now, after about 10, 15 minutes, I just heard this purring noise, but I was kind of drifting off to sleep. So I just kind of ignored it, rolled over, you know, and, you know, kind of drifted a little bit. 15 minutes go by, Molly wakes us up and says, look, I need, need you guys to, to be quiet because there's something in the vicinity i just don't know what it is and start moving up the trail and uh <laughs> this mountain lion poo in the middle of the trail and you can tell it's mountain lion because they cover it over the same way that a um domestic cat does with the, the the kind of kitty litter sort of thing um and i said to wes i was like did you hear anything he's like yeah man i i heard a purring noise as well i was like okay <laughs> you know this is a this is a real challenge this is way beyond your comfort zone i guess but that's the essence of what a challenge is so um that was bigfoot i survived that section got into the aid station um have said you okay you know i had a thousand yard stare on my face i said yeah i'm okay but you know that is one of the most difficult sections of any race that i've ever encountered it really is um so yeah and then managed to bring it home so very pleased with that. you got your money's worth and for anyone thinking of I, s- signing up for the race, the 2023 lottery is actually closed. So if anyone is interested, they can register for the wait list. But it seems to be a very, yeah. very popular race. So I think it, uh, you're not going to get to do it next year. You'll have to go back to uh, Moab. Yeah, so I think Moab next year. Um, I mean, even Abby said at the end of Big Push, like, I'm not sure I'd want to come and crew that race again. Right. It, it's just brutal. I mean, they drove over 800 miles in 200 mile race, which kind of shows you just how remote everything is. Yeah, and it's that's, kind of, that's a you lot. know, that's a lot. It, yeah, dangerous mountain driving as well. It's not like, you know, oh, these are perfect tarmac roads. These are, you know, loose cliff edge roads. And actually during the race, another team's crew member uh, fell asleep at the wheel, went over an embankment. Very fortunate it wasn't a really steep embankment, but airbags deployed had smashed the rear window to get out of the car climb 50 feet back up to the road and obviously you're in the middle of nowhere so they they were lucky to be picked up by another crew member some time after their crash so um yeah they've had to helicopter people off that course because they've fallen down they've had gpx failures like my garmin for the first time ever on that quick attack trail um it failed like and i don't mean the battery stopped it just did this weird update thing um, that I've never seen before. And the interesting thing about that click attack part of that race is um, it's an old Native American um, trading route. So it was the, the, the original Native American route through the mountains. They passed through there to kind of, um, you know, move through the mountains to get to the other side to trade with another tribe. And for me, like there is, there's a little part of me that will be forever stuck on that spiritual little trail up there in the Cascade Mountains. So I feel attached to it for sure. Well, that sounds amazing. And not everyone can just bounce back from a DNF. I think that stopping in a race can sometimes be practice to stop again. So well done with that. Now you mentioned your... Oh, you thank a, you yeah. so much. So you mentioned having a Garmin and that's something I'm going to be interested in as well. If 
you had pulled into an aid station at the Moab 240, what would I find inside your backpack? And tell me about the backpack also. Oh, sorry. Can you just repeat the question, yeah. John? You just broke you, up a little yeah, bit. If there, you mate, were sorry. to pull into one of the aid stations at the Moab 240, what would I find inside your backpack? <laughs> Whiskey, ideally, but I don't think my wife, my wife would let me carry that, unfortunately. Um, you would find puffy jacket, you would find my foil blanket. You would find probably some naughty calories in the, in the shape of some Haribos um, and uh, some chocolate. GU gels, um, headlight, spare headlight. I use the Kugala. Um, if it's really dark, the Kugala waist light. If it's not so dark, I use the petrol head torch. A um, little bit of squirrel nut butter. Definitely some ibuprofen uh, and some painkillers just in case. And... What else would I have? Probably a woolly hat and some gloves, and and that's about it. Um, yeah, all the stuff. Do that you you'd use walking poles? Into the bag. Um, I do. Um, I'm picky about where I use them because I think that there's some sections in races that really require them, and there's others that that don't, and I feel like they just get in the way. So, if it's a specific uh, section like click attack that I know is going to be really challenging, then the poles are out there coming with me. Um, but if it's a maybe a different race and, you know, maybe it's Moab, maybe it's the, the section through Dry Valley, which is, you know, fairly runnable, I'm not going to carry those poles. I, I'll just give them to the crew and get them at the next aid station. So I do think they can be a bit of a problem. Um, and actually, to that point, a problem that I've never experienced before was at Bigfoot in 2021. Um, because of all the dirt um, that was on the ground, you know, and, and the heat, my hands, um, I didn't have sun gloves. My hands got so swollen that come to the night sections, which were actually quite frigid, you know, quite cold, um, I couldn't get my regular size gloves on, which, okay, you know, it's just a bit inconvenient. It's cold. It's not nice to be cold. Um, but the bigger problem was that every time I wanted to get something to eat from my, my zip pack, it became a real effort. You know, when you're younger and you play footy or rugby or whatever it is, and you come in and your hands are shaking, you're trying to undo the zip or you know, do your buttons up on your school shirt, whatever it might be. It was like that. So what was normally like a 30-second thing, okay, just grab that gel or grab that bit of food, it actually became like a real chore and a real pain in the butt to like undo zips or take the water bottles out, switch them over, that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, there's something I haven't experienced before, I guess. And what about a sleeping bag? Do you carry one of those? No, no, nah, nah. It's just full blanket, full blanket. So yeah, usually the forest floor is not so bad. You can sleep on that. Okay. Although Cocodona was kind of worried about snakes and scorpions. So you didn't want the snakes or scorpions getting inside your sleeping bag? Is that the nah, reason you didn't have so one? You, yeah, I wouldn't carry one. Um, okay. It's just extra weight. I don't think you need. Um, I'd be more likely to just put a blanket in the in the car, just like a thin I'm starting to feel a bit soft like now. <laughs> oh, okay. Do you want a heated blanket? Let's, as let's well, move. Let's move that. swiftly along. When you're in between races, do you follow a particular training plan or do you just run? No. So I, I follow a plan. Um, I've got a coach, a guy called uh, Jeff Brown, in American runner, and. Um, He's uh, in his early 50s and, and obviously very successful. I think he came fifth at Hard Rock this year, won Hard Rock multiple times. Um, I think he even won Western as well. Um, so, yeah, great, great runner, great coach. He does all my planning for me. and It's a mixture of stuff, and I think that's absolutely the right thing to do as, a, as an ultra runner wanting to specialize in these long distances. Yeah. <laughs> So often it doesn't come down to like, you know, the first 30 miles where you, you drop in those quick miles. It, it comes down to like, okay, who can survive in the mountains? And, you know, to, to the point I made earlier, keep moving forward when it's, you know, two, three o'clock in the morning and there's a mountain lion prowling around you. That doesn't come down to, you can't teach that physically. It comes down to mental drive and determination. So, for me, I, I want to build strong legs, strong core as much as possible and as well as enjoy the running. And hopefully that can give me some longevity in the sport. And as I look back over the amount of races that you have done and the other challenges, I'm, I'm just wondering, what is it that's inspiring you? What actually 
makes you want to get out and do these things? What's your drive? And I think it comes back to those two things I mentioned before, right? You you want to do something with your life, and you know I truly believe that you know these will be the the moments that I remember. I won't remember the trivial stuff, you know, what, what stress in work or you know what's happened to the price of the pan today. I'm I'm going to remember the times where I had that adventure, you know, when I'm old and sitting on the sofa. But I had that adventure, but did some good at the same time. And I think that really is my drive. Like that, that's what I want to do is try and help people via the way that I can you know do and for me that just so happens to be the vehicle of running and I get to enjoy it get to have experiences but do some good at the same time yeah that's a good answer and I'm hoping we have covered most of what I wanted to talk about you're going to send me sent me off on a few tangents so before we finish up is there anything you'd like to maybe touch on that I yeah. wasn't aware of. Yeah, definitely. It's just a charity element for, for me. You know, we discussed it at the beginning of a bit, and I, I always want to in, take part or embark on these adventures for charity. And over the last five, six, seven years, I've supported a charity called Operation Smile. Uh, Operation Smile are a children's charity, or not children's charity, they're a charity that provides surgical uh, intervention for children and adults with cleft lip, cleft palate deformities all around the world. And in those um, societies where uh, it's prevalent, you do tend to find that people are ostracized from, you know, their society. Um, and actually, you know, yeah, when you and I got on the phone this evening, I had a little smile on my face. I'm sure you did as well. You know, excited to talk about running. I just think it's sad that people don't have you know, that opportunity to be able to smile. It is like the universal language of the world, if you like. So um, if I can do something by you know, raising 150 quid per smile, it is basically, that's what it costs to change someone's life. And um, for me, that's a good thing to do. So that's what I've been supporting for the last five or six, seven years. How did you get involved? Was it one of your races that actually brought you in contact with someone or was it a no, moment? No, no. So... It was um, just really good marketing, <laughs> marketing from there, Bob. Um, it was, uh, I was at a work conference and um, they brought up this video uh, and it was obviously, you know, children that had this, um, this you know, problem of the, the cleft lip and the cleft palate and they'd um, played some really uh, emotional Coldplay music over the top of it and it just hit me, uh, hit me in the old heartstrings a bit and I thought, oh Christ, I've got to do something to try and help these people. So, um, yeah, that's what got me into it. Well, that's a very good and honest answer. And the, the reason I was asking that is because when I was in Nepal, I noticed that there were Everest summiteers were involved in charities mm. that were building schools and, and hospitals because they had a connection with the place because they would have seen what firsthand what was needed. And then because you were going back into the area, they wanted to kind of contribute to it. I remember being in the Sahara going through one village in in particular and we had sweets that we had brought a lot of the athletes brought sweets with them we were kind of told by someone who'd been there before mm. because give them out to the kids but in one village we went into some young girls came out and they didn't want the sweets they were asking for pencils pens because they, they wanted something to bring back to the school to help educate themselves and then i became aware of a charity that was actually providing school books and yeah. pens, pencils for the schools but because you've actually been there and experienced it firsthand, you know exactly uh, what's being done exactly. and, and who it's helping so that, that that's the reason why I suppose I was I was asking uh, that question but you know you did give a good answer as it shows uh, that these you, people no, you're absolutely right yeah. like when, yeah, when you go to a lot of these yeah. races sometimes you don't come back feeling like a good person because you're you're seeing extremes of of poverty and it can actually have that mm. maybe it's that you get to realize what how much you actually have and the more we have Definitely. the more we want and then you do get to realize that there is a difference between needs and wants and if you've been in a desert like what you mentioned there about rationing your water or going somewhere and not having enough water you then know that you can go home and you can leave the tap running while you're brushing your teeth. Or you can just leave, you know, you're in work, somebody leaves the tap running over a dirty cup to let the, let the water just clean the cup. like. And there's an awful lot of wastage. Yeah. But 
you do get to appreciate that the more you travel to these extreme places. It's not being a tourist, yeah. I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. And then, you know, I was very fortunate um, after I got involved with supporting Operation Smile that they sent me on one of their missions to Ethiopia in uh, 2016. And I think, you know, having seen that firsthand, the great work that the volunteers do to change people's lives, it just puts things into perspective for you, doesn't it? And like you say, you know, we find ourselves in these races in the desert in the middle of nowhere, rationing their water, and we've put ourselves there for inverted commas fun, uh, whereas other people uh, happen to endure that every day. So, you know, I think if we can try and do some good for our running and, and help those that are enduring those difficult situations, and that can only be a, a good thing to do for sure. I think that's a great way to finish. Ah, thanks, John. And for anyone listening in, oh, if you enjoyed this or any of the other podcasts, you might consider leaving a review or passing it on to someone. And it could be a while before I do the next one again because I've kind of said it before, I don't want to dilute the quality of what I'm doing. So I'm very, very selective at who I put on. So I'd rather wait a couple of weeks to have the right person on or the right guest rather than just be throwing something out every week because on that note, I'll sign off. Thank you.